Hey everyone, it's Jess. Welcome to Missing at 5280, and I'm just going to stop right there and leave a trigger warning. This episode is not suitable for young children and deals with domestic violence and child abuse. If you're still here, grab your hairspray and your Walkman, because we are going back to the 80s. Now, I normally try to steer away from stories like this. Being a mom, it's not easy to speak about. But as we get into today's episode, I hope you are right there with me, screaming and cursing into your listening device, demanding justice for the voiceless. Today we are heading 7 hours and 46 minutes south down I-25, crossing the New Mexico state border and into the small town of Socorro, New Mexico. The town sits tucked away in the Rio Grande Valley, an area known for its southwestern art and hiking trails. But with a population of about 9,000 people, this town lands number six on the top 10 most dangerous towns in New Mexico to live in. In Socorro, the violent crime and property crime are more than 30% above the state average, and one in 18 residents will be the victim of a crime. This is where the survivor of our story grew up, so it's no surprise to me that he has gone on to create a podcast seeking justice of the victims in New Mexico called True Consequences. It was there where I fell down the rabbit hole of New Mexico's forgotten children. Of New Mexico's nearly 500,000 children, 29% live in poverty. That's the highest rate in the nation. And 15 out of every thousand children in New Mexico will experience abuse or neglect. And it was there where I heard the story of Jacob Jeremiah Landine. Our story starts off in 1977 when Brenda Crawford married Jean Landine. Then, on November 20th, 1980, they had a son, Eric Carter Lindine, and around 1983, the family moved to Texas. The relationship between Brenda and Jean was difficult to say the least, but Brenda gave birth to their second child, Jacob Jeremiah Lindine, on July 1st, 1986. Jean spent most of his time away from the family, hanging out with friends, doing honestly who really knows what. And Brenda was alone and had no means to support her children. By the grace of God, a neighbor left care packages on their steps, giving young Eric, Chef Boyardee, and juice. Shortly after Jacob was born in 1986, Brenda decided enough was enough and packed up her babies. She moved them back in with her mother in Socorro, New Mexico. She got a job at the local grocery store, the Supermart, and with her mother's help, she was getting back on her feet. It was at this time the suspect started to come around. We will not be using his name for legal purposes, but if you want my opinion, he doesn't even deserve his name to be spoken, so unlike other subjects on this podcast, we won't be calling him anything other than the suspect. The suspect and Brenda had almost always known each other. They went to school and church together, and he was actually best friends with Jean, and knew exactly how the relationship had left off. He had an inside scoop, if you will. This man seemed to have everything Jean didn't, had a job as a maintenance worker for the city and a steady place to live. He spent time with Brenda and her son doing family things. It was as if her dreams had come true. And like the neighbor before, this man seemed as if he were a godsend. They started dating in late December 1986 or very early January of 1987 
the suspect and Brenda moved into a small trailer together with her two sons, Eric, who was six years old, and Jacob, who was around six months old. It didn't take long at all for the strange things to start happening with Jacob. His playful, happy demeanor seemed to change drastically whenever this man was around. He recoiled and acted afraid. Brenda did question the man, asking him if maybe he had been playing too rough with the child. He denied doing so and later started to place blame on Eric, Jacob's six-year-old brother. I'm sure Brenda didn't know what to think at this point. Eric was a very loving older brother who had asked for Jacob long before he had even arrived. But they did just move, and having so many changes happening to such a young boy may have given him some sort of resentments. It didn't seem so serious until March, when injuries started to appear on Jacob. Brenda even took Jacob to the doctor for a small abrasion on the boy's ear. And in my opinion, this is when the slow, methodical manipulation of Eric started to happen. The suspect placing blame on Eric, stating Eric was jealous of the baby. Later, the suspect questioned Eric about this repetitively telling him not to lie. The six-year-old then broke down and said he accidentally dropped the baby while trying to put him in his grip after getting him out while Jacob was crying. After these incidents, Brenda started having her mother babysit. And two weeks later, Brenda dropped off the children to the grandmother, Merlinda Crawford. The grandmother noticed a soft lump on Jacob's head and Brenda then took him to the doctor that she had previously visited. After an initial examination, the doctor concluded that Jacob had received a blow to the head and sent them to the hospital, where Jacob underwent a procedure to relieve pressure caused from a subdermal hematoma, which is the collection of the blood between the covering of the brain and the surface of the brain. According to MedlinePlus.gov, a subdural hematoma is most often the result of a severe head injury. In infants and young children, a subdermal hematoma may occur after child abuse and are commonly seen in a condition called shaken baby syndrome. Jacob was hospitalized from March 15th to March 17th. And shortly after Jacob was sent home, Brenda decided to send Eric to live with his father. This was after the suspect again interrogated the six-year-old and Eric broke down claiming he had kicked his brother, but he didn't think he kicked him very hard. And on March 18th, Eric left to California to live with his father, Jean. A social worker, Sue Holland, was also sent to the home around this time, after a neighbor filed a complaint. During this visit, the suspect entered the home and belligerently asked the social worker who she was before telling her to leave the property. Although Brenda sent Eric to California with Jean, she was still having her mother watch Jacob while she worked. But on April 9th, while Brenda was scheduled to work the 11 to 7.30 shift, Merlinda had plans to attend church that evening and had arranged to drop off Jacob an hour early to the suspect. This would have been helpful for Brenda and the suspect as well because they were scheduled to look at a trailer they wanted to move into. The trailer did not have electricity and they needed daylight to see it. So not having to drive across town at 7.30 to pick Jacob up seemed convenient. So around 6 p.m., Merlinda, Jacob's grandmother, dropped Jacob off with the suspect. Jacob was reported to be fine at this time by his grandmother. About an hour later, Brenda sees the suspect rushing towards her in the grocery store. And this is where we get story number one. And I'm going to try to label each of these stories as they come. Story number one is to Brenda, Jacob's mother. 
stating Jacob fell off the couch. It was at this time they both go to the hospital where Jacob was being seen. When she arrived, Brenda remembers her mother already being there. She was very distraught, though, and was in and out of the waiting room. When she was gone, story number two happens. And story number two is to the initial doctor and goes. He left the baby alone, and when he came back, the baby was unresponsive. It was at this point, it was decided Jacob needed to be transferred and flown to the University of New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is about an hour and a 10-minute drive. At 10.40 p.m., Agent DeWalt was notified of a nine-month-old baby that had been received to the hospital with a blow to the head and suspected child abuse. Agent DeWalt went to the hospital and made contact with Kristen Chapin, who was a hospital social worker, and Suzanne Green, who was the evening administrator of the hospital. They told Agent DeWalt that the nine-month-old Jacob Landine was brought into the hospital from Socorro, New Mexico, with a massive cerebral fracture. The lifeguard helicopter air ambulance had received a telephone call from Dr. Blodgett in Socorro, New Mexico. The examination revealed indications of older injuries, including a previous head injury and a broken rib. They believed that the baby could be a victim of child abuse, and it was at this time the family members were questioned. And here comes story number three, and this is to Agent Sue DeWalt. The suspect told Agent DeWalt that Mrs. Landine's mother, Merlinda, brought Jacob to him at approximately 6 p.m. on Thursday, April 9th, 1987. He stated that Miss Landine was going to look at a trailer after she got off work, that the trailer did not have electricity, and they needed to look at it before it got dark. Miss Landine had reportedly asked her mother, Merlinda, to bring Jacob to the suspect so she would not have to make a trip to pick Jacob up. Jacob seemed to be feeling all right, and the suspect put him in his walker and gave him a teething cookie in his bottle. The suspect was on the floor dubbing some cassette tapes for his brother, and Jacob was playing in the living room in his walker. One of the wheels on the walker kept getting stuck in the box which contained the tapes. The suspect stated that he moved Jacob away from the tapes, but Jacob wanted to keep playing with them. He then took Jacob out of the walker and placed Jacob on the floor behind himself. As he was laying on the floor with his head propped up with one of his hands, a suspect had given Jacob two or three old tapes to play with, his teething cracker and his bottle. After playing on the floor for a while, Jacob became sleepy, and the suspect stated that he picked Jacob up and was carrying him to the bedroom when the tape clicked. He put Jacob on the couch and went to change the tape. He heard Jacob make a noise, and when he turned around, Jacob was lying on the floor between the couch and the coffee table. The suspect stated that he picked Jacob up and saw a yellowish fluid coming from his mouth and nose. He turned Jacob over and patted him on the back in an attempt to clear his mouth. When he turned Jacob back over, he observed that Jacob's eyes were rolling into the back of his head. The suspect then ran to the neighbor's house with Jacob to have them, the neighbors, call the rescue unit. Jacob was still throwing up and he placed Jacob on the floor and tried to clear his throat and he gave Jacob mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. After conducting interviews with the family members, Agent DeWalt placed Jacob in temporary police custody, and at 3.58 a.m. the next morning, she received a phone call from Dr. Bernie McWilliams. Jacob had passed away at 3.34 a.m. during surgery. 
When the doctor went to notify the family, the suspect's first reaction was, this is going to make me look really bad. Take that info and do with it what you want. To me, it speaks volumes of his character, or lack thereof. And here comes the fourth story. This story is to Dr. McWilliams. The suspect stated he was playing music very loudly when he heard gasping noises. He turned and he saw Jacob between the couch and the coffee table. It was at this time Jean and Eric had flown in from California. While Jean was being interviewed, he mentions Eric having comments of guilt pertaining to the previous head injury, even though he was states away while this happened. And during another set of questions with Detective Apodaca, we get story number five. Story number five. We're already on story number five. Okay, here we go. The suspect went to change a cassette tape. He heard Jacob scream, turned around, and saw him on the floor with stuff coming out of his mouth. It was at this point law enforcement thought a polygraph would be appropriate. Rightfully so. It was then scheduled for April 15th at 1 p.m. Fuckery is about to occur, guys. But on April 14th at 10.30 a.m., the suspect confessed to Socorro Police Department Assistant Chief Johnny Trujillo, and the scheduled polygraph was canceled. And after that, Sue DeWalt filed her 11-page report on April 21st, classifying case number 87-23-30026 as involuntary manslaughter. Just to note, there is a lot of missing info in this case, missing reports, and recorded interviews. One of the things that has been lost to time or other circumstances is that confession, so unfortunately, we may never even know what was said. Then, on July 9th, 1987, a polygraph was actually given, and our suspect failed the shit out of it. Two main questions were highlighted during this time. One, did you intentionally strike Jacob in the head area on April 9th? And two, did you strike the baby in the head area before he went limp? And as I stated before, while he claimed he didn't, the test showed deception. And it was noted by Officer Garcia that he was not being truthful. It was in a following interview with Officer Garcia that we are given story number six. And you guys, if you didn't think it could get any more strange, here we are. The suspect said Jacob was standing, holding himself up on a chair in the living room. The suspect knelt beside him and angled his chin to playfully rub his beard between the child's legs. He felt Jacob lose his balance and lifted his head, knocking Jacob to the floor acting almost as a catapult to this nine-month-old baby. After Jacob fell, the suspect said he seemed fine, but sleepy, 
so he laid him down when he heard strange noises coming from Jacob. So then he held the baby over his left forearm and patted his back. When that didn't work, he held the baby up by both of his feet and then went to the neighbor for help. What the fuck? But on December 7th, 1987, it was determined that there was insufficient evidence to move forward and the case was closed. What happened next proved to be a living nightmare for Brenda and Eric. After the case was closed, Brenda and the suspect went on to marry. And Brenda had been spared from abuse up until this point, as was Eric. But like a lot of domestic violence cases, the behavior of the abuser slowly started to turn from love bombing to torture. And after almost three years of enduring emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, Brenda gathered the courage to leave after her 13-year-old niece told her about the suspect's attempts to groom her. Brenda was granted an annulment and an order of protection by a judge, and they left. Story number seven comes after Brenda left the suspect. During this time, he was leaving notes for her and showing up outside of Eric's bedroom window, threatening him. He wanted to meet Brenda at Jacob's grave, but she instead offered to meet him at the police station. And he fucking showed up. So story number seven took place at the police station, and he stated that he was playing with Jacob throwing him up in the air. He missed catching him, and he hit the chair pretty hard. After Brenda left the suspect, she never stayed quiet and kept trying every avenue, writing to anyone she could. And in 1992, Jacob's case file fell onto the desk of Detective Haley. And thus, Detective Haley started his investigation which is how we come to story number eight for our suspect. In July, 1992, he sits down with Detective Haley and claims he was playing with Jacob next to the armchair when he thought Jacob was falling. The suspect was laying down and sat up. When the child was falling, he then grabbed Jacob by the back of his thighs with his left arm and Jacob then fell, hitting his head. The suspect then went to change the cassette tape he put Jacob on the couch, and when he came back, Jacob was on the floor making gurgling noises. During this conversation, he backs up to talk about playing with Jacob and said he could only grasp his diaper while he fell. You guys, that's already, he's in this whole one conversation, he's already, he's already changed his story, almost in the same fucking breath. And during this interview, the suspect said Jacob could have been injured by the floor, the chair, or the fall from the couch. He also mentioned he thought he would be blamed because he was the only one there. Will you fucking think? And on August 12, 1992, an arrest warrant for abandonment or abuse of a child was issued and signed for the arrest of the suspect by then-Judge Smith of the 7th Judicial District Court in Socorro, New Mexico. Say that fucking five times fast. 
I couldn't even say it once. The affidavit for arrest warrant had been prepared by then-detective Lieutenant Joel Haley, City Police Department in Socorro, New Mexico. The affidavit for arrest warrant was approved by then-District Attorney Lee DeChamps of the 7th Judicial District Attorney's Office in Socorro, Socorro County, New Mexico. The arrest warrant number was number 25-01-81-0220-A-1. And on August 25th, 1992, the suspect was indeed arrested. On August 25th, 1992, the suspect was indeed arrested. And at 1.53 p.m., after the suspect was read his Miranda rights, he then comes out with his ninth version of events. And you guys, if you were wondering why I labeled them, this is why. He said that Jacob was sick and medicated when he fell off the couch. He claimed this was his original statement. But what really happened was... Then we get story number 10. Jacob leaned on the suspect's neck while the suspect was lying on the floor. When he thought Jacob was losing his balance, he grabbed Jacob's leg. Thinking he was going to fall to the right, but Jacob then fell to the left and hit the armchair. The baby's eyes turned white and he tried to catch his breath. The suspect panicked and ran next door with Jacob, while the neighbor gave Jacob mouth to mouth. And he, the suspect, went blank. He says he thinks he told someone to call an ambulance and went to get Brenda. He said he didn't want to tell anyone this at first because he was threatened by Brenda's father and he didn't think Brenda would want to marry him if she knew this. He said he failed the polygraph test because he was so grief-stricken and didn't know day from night. In this same interview, Detective Haley asked the suspect if he remembered talking to Chief Johnny Trujillo and telling him about hitting Jacob on the back. The suspect stated yes. He stated that he had given Jacob a biscuit sometime before they were playing on the floor. Jacob had fallen. The suspect stated that Jacob had started choking on the biscuit and he had patted Jacob on the back. He stated that he held Jacob upside down and was patting him on the back and the biscuit came out. The suspect stated that he gave Jacob a bottle and that Jacob drank from it, which can never even be proven if this was his earlier story to Chief Trujillo or not. So I'm not sure if I should give this story a number. Maybe we'll just call it ten and a half. And in a sick and twisted plot turn, the suspect claims he and Jacob were very close, saying Jacob would seek him out for comfort. And he even called him Jake the Snake. Hashtag puke, as Bree would say. Miss Bree. Bree, where are you? I miss you. I need you here. But then story number 11 comes out in the same interview. Is everyone still with me? But anyways, he states that he used to drink and smoke marijuana a lot. And the day in question, he was smoking marijuana laced with cocaine. Socorro, New Mexico, you should probably think about drug testing your city employees. I guess this happened in the 80s. Maybe they do now. I sure hope so. So this guy's smoking cocaine weed, 
and says he may have injured Jacob while Jacob was choking on a teething cookie. And while he patted him on the back, he may have hit him in the head. That's story number 11. Then with story number 11, we now get marijuana-laced cocaine. The story has all of the things. After all of that, he was booked into jail for the night. He was released the next day, and that was that. Nothing else ever happened, and I'm not sure how in the fuck that whole situation went down. Like, booked into jail for all this shit, but then he just goes home after that the next day, just like, do-do-do, gone. But like I said earlier, guys, Brendan never quit seeking justice for Jacob. And in 2005, her email again landed on the desk of someone who tried to help. The case file reads as follows. On Thursday, April 14th, 2005, at 1.23 p.m., while at the state police office in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I, Sergeant Thomas E. Christian Sr., New Mexico State Police Criminal Investigation Section Supervisor, Cold Case Homicide Unit, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, received an email from my immediate supervisor. My immediate supervisor is Lieutenant Pete Castellas, New Mexico State Police, Criminal Investigation Section in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The email instructed me to research a case file, CIS case number 87-23-3-0023, and to contact Miss Brenda Crawford in the near future, and to advise her of my involvement, and that I would be looking into the investigation to see what was done. Attached to Lieutenant Casayas's email was an email sent to him by Miss Brenda Crawford. This is a synopsis of Miss Crawford's email. Mr. Casetas, my nine-month-old son was beaten to death on 4-07-1987. I have done everything in my power to seek justice in this case, from speaking directly to the last two DAs to contacting victims' rights. But so far, nothing has been done. The name of the victim was Jacob Landine, case number 87-23-3-0026. Investigating officer, Sue DeWalt. I am the mother of the victim, Brenda Crawford. The reason Juanita Gordon, who is an investigator in the 7th Judicial District Attorney's Office in Socorro, New Mexico, gave me for not prosecuting is because she could not give the suspect a speedy trial. And she also mentioned that she was afraid the suspect might sue the county. This is a cop-out, since the suspect failed the lie detector test and confessed to two different officers. To me, this is not a lack of evidence. Socorro County Police are negligent. They do not care that this person has never been punished and is probably still hurting innocent children. I did not have this information until 1990, but the DA's office did. Yet they did not do their job. I can be reached at Redacted. Thank you, Brenda. This concluded the email. And then, on April 21st, 2005, the sergeant reached out to Brenda to let her know he was looking into the case. 
On April 26th, the sergeant met with Juanita Gordon, who was the woman Brenda had previously spoken with. On April 26th, she claimed Brenda's original statement provided the suspect with an alibi, and she only changed her statement after they broke up, which is not what she had told Brenda. But let's, while we're here, let's just revisit Brenda's original statement really quick. And this was taken by Agent Sue DeWalt. Miss Landine told Agent DeWalt that she was employed as a checker at the Supermart in Socorro, New Mexico, usually working the 3 p.m. to the 9 p.m. shift. However, on this date, April 9th, 1987, she was scheduled to work the 11 to 7.30 p.m. shift. Miss Landine told Agent DeWalt that her mother, Merlinda Crawford, normally babysits Jacob while she, Brenda, is working. Miss Landine stated that on the day, April 9th, 1987, she told her mother, Merlinda Crawford, to take the baby, Jacob, to the suspect, who was Brenda's boyfriend at the time, with whom she lived with, if she, Merlinda, wanted to go to church. Miss Landine stated that her mother, Merlinda, took the baby, Jacob, to the suspect at, at approximately 6 p.m. At approximately 7 p.m., the suspect entered her workplace, the supermart, in hysterics, and told her that the baby, Jacob, was in the ambulance and not breathing. According to Miss Landine, the suspect told her that the baby, Jacob, had fallen off a couch. Miss Landine told Agent DeWalt that she does not know what happened and that she does not know of anyone who would hurt the baby. Miss Landine told Agent DeWalt that the suspect seems to care for Jacob, the baby, and takes good care of him while in her presence. The suspect has two children of his own with whom he has visitation rights. Miss Landine said that the suspect is a good father and that his children have never been unusually injured. The only person who babysits Jacob is her mother. Miss Landine stated that her father is usually present at home when Jacob is there. However, he spends most of his time outside working on his car. Miss Landine stated that she was never abused or mistreated as a child and the suspect has never mentioned to her any abuse in his childhood. So, this woman thinks, even though Brenda was at work and nowhere near the suspect, that she can provide him with an alibi. I'm not exactly quite sure. That's how that works. But, I digress. After this, Sergeant Christian went to work jumping through hoops, trying to obtain anything he could on Jacob's case. The University of New Mexico sent over a box of all it had collected, but other than the hospital, it would prove to be nearly impossible to gather other documents, as a lot of things hadn't been kept around due to time, and some other things seemed just to be lost. He then spoke with Chief Joel Haley, who was the detective assigned to the case in 92, when the suspect had been arrested. You remember that one time when he was arrested and he went to jail that one night and then he walked out the next day and nothing ever happened? So, that's the detective we're talking to. Chief Haley said that he did not remember the case or why the charges never went to court. Haley told him he would reach out if anything jogged his memory. Convenient. So convenient, sir. So convenient. 
And now we have the 2005 investigative conclusion. After an extensive review of the completed investigative reports, which included the autopsy reports, it is in my opinion that the criminal charge of abandonment or abuse of a child 30-6-1A and C, which resulted in the death of Jacob Landin, A, first degree felony in 1987, was justified and should have been pursued against the suspect. The suspect was arrested in 1992 and charged with that offense. But after his arrest, it appears nothing else occurred in the initial filing of the criminal charge, and I have been unable to determine why this had occurred, as records no longer exist. There was sufficient evidence in the, investig in the investigator's opinion to prove that the suspect knew of Jacob's recent head injury, which occurred several weeks before the incident, and this incident, which then resulted in Jacob's death. The suspect should have been more attentive with Jacob's needs due to Jacob's recent head injury. In addition, the suspect had taken care of Jacob numerous times before this incident, so he was familiar with Jacob. In addition, the suspect had prior experience with infants and small children, as he had, at that time, small children of his own from a previous marriage, in which he still had physical contact with those children. The suspect did negligently and without justifiable cause place Jacob in a situation that endangered Jacob's life. The suspect knew of Jacob's prior injury and combined with that the fact that he changed his story or version of events during the investigation, which were not witnessed by anyone else several times. And that fact alone draws a lot of suspicion to any story he tells after his initial statement. This incident, which resulted in Jacob's death, occurred one way, not the two or three ways as told by the suspect. The suspect knew that he needed to be much more attentive to Jacob's needs, as Jacob was only nine months old and still in need of almost constant supervision and the recent head injury, and the suspect failed to do this. The problem with this investigation at this time is the statute of limitations and in this investigator's opinion, if this is not overcome, there cannot be a successful criminal prosecution in this matter. We also have a speedy trial issue. The suspect was arrested in 1992, and it appears that the criminal charge was never pursued by the state. And as paperwork goes, it was filed and sent to the DA's office for review. On Tuesday, November 7, 2006, while at the State Police Office in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Sergeant Christian received a telephone fax from Chief Deputy District Attorney Bruce A. Burwell, State of New Mexico, 7th Judicial District Attorney's Office in Socorro, New Mexico, in connection to the investigation. The fax contained a letter from Mr. Burwell, dated November 7, 2006, in regards to the Jacob J. Landine death investigation. The letter advised Sergeant Christian that Mr. Burwell had reviewed several times the material, the investigative report, that he had sent him concerning the events surrounding the death of Jacob Landine. Jacob Landine's death occurred in Socorro County, New Mexico in April of 1987. Mr. Burwell had determined that there is insufficient evidence at this time to proceed with a felony prosecution. 
The letter also stated that Mr. Burwell is of the opinion that the extreme age of the matter, coupled with the statute of limitations, which was in effect at the time of Jacob Landine's death, would by itself make it impossible to proceed with a prosecution in this case. No evidence was maintained or seized during this investigation. Now this case is considered closed. Just like that. Closed. But how? Let's rewind for a minute. On April 11, 1987, at approximately 4.04 p.m., Agent DeWalt spoke by telephone with Dr. Pat Lance, who was the pathologist who had conducted the autopsy of Jacob Landine. Dr. Lance stated that he found a broken rib, which was an old injury, and in addition to the older head injury, he found recent trauma to the head. Dr. Lance stated that the skull had been fractured along a suture, and an open hand probably caused the injury. There were no marks on the scalp and very little blood under the skin. Dr. Lance felt the onset of symptoms would have occurred no more than one half of an hour after the injury. Dr. Lance also found slight trauma to the buttocks of Jacob Landine. I don't think I'll ever understand how this case got swept under New Mexico's dusty-ass rug for so long. And Jacob's story is really just the beginning. This past weekend, I had the honor to speak with Eric. And while we did talk about a few facts from his brother's case, I really wanted to focus on his mission and the legacy Jacob is leaving behind through his older brother. Which is how I will end this week's episode. I already like know you but I don't know you because I'm like I follow you on Facebook and Twitter and everything and I'm like so can you tell me a little bit about um like your podcast and stuff uh, yeah sure um I started the podcast a little bit over a year ago and really it was because of what happened to my brother that I wanted to create the show um it was because of that and also because I saw that the same kind of thing kept happening over and over again. And injustice in New Mexico is, is tricky. And so there weren't a lot of people really speaking out about what, what was happening and what's wrong with our justice system. So I, I was really into podcasts as a listener and, um, you know, I like all kinds of weird, weird stuff, like true crime and paranormal and all that. So I figured it was a good way to give people a voice in my community that maybe aren't able to be heard through traditional media. Um, and I also wanted to give them an authentic voice. I want them to be able to tell their stories in the ways that they want to without without adding in sensationalism sensationalism or speculation or you know like any of that other stuff I just wanted it to be kind of raw and so so that's what I have I have my my True Consequences show which is all about crime in New Mexico really I can I really appreciate that because that's almost that's why I started mine only for Colorado for to get all that speculation out and really just talk to like the 
mostly the victims and their families, and which kind of is what led me to you. That's awesome. Strangely. I respect that. I respect that so much. So, um, can you tell me what your earliest memory of your brother's killer is? Uh, yeah. So, it was pretty early on in, in my mom's relationship with him. And she started to kind of slowly introduce me to him. And I remember one night we went over to his place and we bought a bunch of candy and popcorn and we watched the original Terminator movie. And I just remember, excuse me, being very excited about it, you know, feeling like it was pretty cool to, first of all, be watching this this movie that I should probably should not have been watching. Um, at that age, and then, uh, you know, all the candy and everything, it was just really exciting to, at first, you know, he seemed like a really good guy at first. Yeah, and, like, did he have, did he have his, like, own place that you guys would, like, go over to, like? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, like, kind of what, what was your mom's situation at that point? Like, where was, where was she living, and what was she, what was she doing? Uh, we were living with my grandparents, and my mom, we had just moved back from Texas. We were, um, my parents had separated. There was a lot of problems that they were having, and so she moved us back to New Mexico to be closer to our family so that she could work and support us, because my dad just really wasn't, he was a little bit negligent uh, towards towards my mom and I and my brother. And, so my mom got a job at the local grocery store and we were we were living with my grandparents and they would help out with child care and watching you yeah. and your little brother because your little brother was he was very very young he was just born right um when we moved back i think he was probably like three months old yeah so um can you tell me um like kind of how your how their uh, relationship kind of progressed, like, because I know you mentioned a lot of love bombing, like, a lot of movie nights and candy and, like, attention that she obviously wasn't getting, like, from your dad, I'm assuming, is why she left. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, You know, my dad, not only was he neglectful, you know, to us, but he was also... Uh, having an emotional affair with another woman. And so that was the final straw for my mom. Um, and and when, you know, I don't know what you want to call him, but when her boyfriend came around, or soon-to-be boyfriend came around, he, he was showering us with affection. He was showering us with love and uh, attention and, and things that we... Like you said, we, we desperately wanted, we desperately needed. Um, he was absent from our lives, so it was refreshing for us. We thought it was great. And and also, you know, this person has, has been in our family circle for ever. My mom went to school with him. Uh, they grew up together. They went to the same church. It, he was my dad's best friend, so there was really no reason to second guess his motives you know 
And at the time, I think that people weren't really educated about what love bombing is. No, because this was, this was in the 80s, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was, I mean, it, it wasn't as talked about as now. Yeah, it, it, we didn't know a lot. You know, I think that in the 80s, domestic violence and, and child abuse, you know, we were still in that kind of time frame where people were of the mindset of, if it's not affecting you, it doesn't matter to you, you should just ignore it and move on with your life. You know, even even things like reporting laws weren't nearly as strict as they are now. Yeah, like mandatory reporters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, this this man, I mean, we can call him whatever you feel like calling him. But your mom's boyfriend, he he was he was like a part of the community, correct? Like a positive, what people would think would be a positive influence in the community. Like, is am I? Am I correct on that, like, assumption? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he he works for the county. He was friends with all of the police. They all hung out. They played basketball every Saturday and in the police force. Um, police and the sheriff's department, there was, like, a, a city league. <clears throat> so people, people knew him. His dad uh, was a reverend at a, at a church. You know, these are upstanding, what you think to be upstanding people in the community. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that was my next question was like, does your, did he know anybody in law enforcement? So just, yeah. just knowing that like, just affects so much. It definitely uh, makes me ask more questions about things. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the confession, you know, it's just, yeah. And missing yeah. evidence and stuff. <clears throat> Exactly. Just how does how does that even how does that even make sense? You know, I mean, we can make it make sense one way. Yeah, I have theories. Yeah, I have I have some theories of my own. Um, but as we were talking about, like, as it wasn't as known what to look out for, like, you know, if what what signs would you say that you would you would look out for for like a like a mom and a young child that, you know, may be seeking something, something better for themselves. And what would be the signs to look out for of maybe being, um, tricked? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is cliche, uh, but if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, I think that's a, a, a good lesson. The other thing I would say is you know, trust your, your gut instinct. I think my mom had several moments of, you know, intuition or gut feelings or whatever you want to call it that, that I'm sure she wished she would not have brushed away. So I, I think that that's, that's the number one thing. And, and, you know, I would say just, just listen to that, whatever that is, you know, that people have, um, I think he, she was an easy target for him because of the fact that he knew my dad. He knew the situation that was happening in their relationship because him and my dad were best friends. So, you know, they talked about it. And then our families were so close that it doesn't take much to, to learn those things. Um, but, you know, there were little signs about him 
not being who he was early on or who he said he was. Um, you know, his reactions to things, he would, he would often overreact, not to the point of physical violence, but, you know, you, you read about it in the, in the investigation. If my brother would wake up in the middle of the night because he wasn't feeling well and start crying, he would, he would yell at my mom about that. You know, that's, that's not the normal reaction of somebody who uh, is a parent who has had two kids before. You expect the, that to happen when you're a parent. You expect kids to wake up, especially when they're not feeling well. Um, you know, he would yell at my mom for, for touching his stereo. So there were just weird things like that that just were little hints that maybe things weren't exactly as good as they seemed they were. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that, yes, it, it totally does. Um, if somebody is kind of noticing things like that in their relationship and like what I'm, you know, like what, what would be your advice to somebody that is kind of seeing those patterns or little signs? It's, it's really hard to, to see this stuff when it's happening to you because when you're dealing with somebody like this guy um, who's what I would consider to be a, a narcissistic abuser, you know, they are very good at manipulating you. They're great at gaslighting you. They're great at convincing you that uh, you're the problem and that whatever you're thinking is, is not real. And so it's, it sometimes can be hard to identify those things when they're happening to you. And I would just say that the first time somebody shows you who they are, who they really are, believe them. Don't don't second guess that. You know, um, I, I get it. It's it's hard to lead in these situations. Uh, it's hard to to feel like maybe you're you're making it worse than it is, especially when somebody's gaslighting you. But you know, I I think that you have to trust yourself, and you have to trust your instincts, and you have to trust. Uh, the information that's being provided to you, I would say it's better to be safe than sorry. Um, and, and the good tell of somebody in this kind of mindset is the second you leave them, watch what happens. Watch their behavior. If they switch, like a, like a light switch, you know, if they switch their behavior and suddenly they're uh, loving and caring and apologetic and begging and you know, promising to change, that, that's a clear indication that there's a problem. Is that what your mom kind of experienced? Mm-hmm. Like, after your after your brother had passed? Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he would basically try to find any opportunity to get in front of my mom to talk to her. Uh, and if he couldn't do that, he would write her notes. And I have several of those notes still. Uh, very sweet very apologetic, uh, very contritious. You know, you if you read that and you didn't know the whole story, you'd be like, oh, what a nice what a nice letter. He, he feels really bad. Um, but it was just a way to manipulate, really, is, is what it is. Yeah, well, my first thought is, like, if you're apologizing, there's something you're apologizing for, so... Right. I don't... Obviously. Man. Um, What would you like... um, 
Actually, you know what? While we're going into, like, his behaviors and stuff, could do you mind talking about, like, his behavior, like, after your mom finally decided to, that was it, that was enough, it, you, you guys actually got out and left? Like, yeah. what happened after that? Yeah, um, he stalked us for a number of years, I would say at least three years. Uh, he would follow us around town. You know, if we were, if we were driving down the road and he saw us, he would, he would turn around and he would start following us really closely. Um, <clears throat> if my mom went to the grocery store, he would follow her in the store. Um, he used to come to my bedroom door every single night and our bedroom window, sorry every single night and, and knock on my window and tell me that he was going to kill me. Gosh. And you were like an, like an eight year old. I was about, and actually by that point, I think I was like nine. Uh, I was probably like 10. Okay. Actually. Okay. Gosh. It's about 1990. Okay. It was right before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you like to see happen with your brother's case? Um, you know, we, we were never given our day in court. Jake, Jacob never had his day in court. And, and I think that that's, that's wrong. You know, whether you believe that this was negligence or whether you believe that this was intentional, I'm not here to, to determine that for anybody. It's really, uh, the fact of the matter is, my brother died because of either his direct action or his inaction. And, and however you look at it, it's wrong. And, and there should be some accountability for that. You know, aside from the years of abuse that my mom and I suffered at his hand, which there should also be accountability for the, the fact that, that there's never been any kind of trial, not even a grand jury is a, is a slap in the face. It, it's like being gaslit by, by, uh, by the state really, because, you know, we're here with our lives in shambles. I mean, my brother's gone. We went through hell with this person. And, and the state's like, oh, well, sorry that happened, or not even sorry that happened, like, it's too bad, I'm not going to do anything about it. And that's wrong. You know, I feel like they've given him permission to continue behaving in this way. They've given him permission uh, without realizing it, maybe, to harm other people to harm other children, to beat women. They've, they've allowed this to happen and done nothing to prevent it from happening. And so every other life that's been impacted by this person, you know, since my mom left him, is on them. Yes. And, you know, it is actually, it is in our rights that when something like this happens, like, we are, we are 
able to face the person that has done this, just as it is in somebody's rights to face their accuser. Like, it it goes both ways. Like, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, have you, um, have you had any luck with your petition to get this to the, um, attorney general? So I can tell you that, um, the attorney general, their, their office and, and my family have been in contact. I can't really publicly talk about what happened with that conversation, but, um, the DA is now, is now considering the situation. Well, that's some positive news. Um, we don't really need to go into that any further, but can I, um, can I ask you, do you, like, do you know, I haven't really looked into the DA or anything, like, do you know anything about them? Like, how long have they been in their position? Uh, he's been in office on and off, uh, for the last 20 years. I think, uh, he was the DA in the late nineties and then he wasn't for a little while and now he is again. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not sure when he's up for reelection either. That's something that I, I probably need to find out. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Look into that. Um, like, so is he is he a part of your community then? Like, has he has he lived there then? Yeah, the DA. So Socorro is a very small town. The county is pretty large in terms of geography, but population is is pretty small. You know, the city itself, I think, is maybe like seven or eight thousand people. Okay. Uh, that's on a good day. I don't live there anymore. But uh, you would you would have to to live there as a as a prosecutor in order to work there just because you know, there's really nothing. The closest large community is probably thirty miles away. Yeah. So that was those are that's my list of questions. Oh, that was easy. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm not I'm not too I tr- I try not to be too complicated. <laughs> taking time out of your Saturday and stuff. Well, it's nice to not to have to rehash everything, you know. That gets that gets a little exhausting. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I did kind of make you go into some stuff. I feel bad for that too because I was mostly I mostly just wanted to talk about your mission and your podcast and like actually, um, you know, shameless plug here. You actually you have a new podcast coming out, right? You want to? Uh, I have a new podcast. Uh, coming out, and I do have another podcast that I do as well. Um, so the the other podcast I do, <clears throat> excuse me, is called Dos Pequeños, which is a true crime or not true crime, sorry, comedy paranormal podcast. And I do that with my friend Alex. And then Alex and I are also doing another show uh, coming out sometime this year called Great. Huh. And that's just going to be like just casual conversation it's not really there's no format really it's we're just talking about things that are either like great or great in life and and trying to take a a funny look at things my first episode is going to be about terrible bosses oh i love that oh (laughs) if you want a story or two (laughs) yeah absolutely send them my way um yeah, it, it's going to be fun. It's it's nice to have a couple of other 
started shows <laughs> to to help offset some of the, the heaviness and, and the bummer fest that true consequences can be sometimes. Yeah, no, I I understand that. And I honestly, interviewing people about this will literally never get, I don't think it'll ever get easier. I don't know how all those weird, like, TV personalities do it with just, like, a straight face. It's bizarre, yeah. It's so crazy. I, I feel like I almost cried when you were talking like five times, so I'm like trying not to cough in my <laughs> cough into my mic or anything. But thank you for your interview yeah. and time. Thank thank you, Jessica. That was really I really appreciated just the uh approach you, t- you took to this, so I appreciate that. Well thank you. I yeah, you know, I I tr- I'm trying to, like you said, give a voice to the victims and, like, the families and the people that were actually involved in the crime and kind of take a step back from all that, you know, glitz and glamour of, you know, true crime. So it might not be so interesting or anything, but... Well, that's okay. I've been accused of being boring, but... It's important. Yeah, I always fight, fight back with that because, you know, from my perspective... Yeah, it's fine to be fascinated by by crime and by murder and by deviant behavior. Like that's fine. You know, I get that. I'm I'm that way. Uh, what's not okay is to trivialize and sensationalize the trauma of people. Uh, I think it's important for listeners of true crime to remember that like, you're talking about people's lives. You're talking about the worst possible day in somebody's life, and and that. That needs to be treated with respect and with care. And, and you know, I don't have a lot of respect for creators that try to make things more traumatic than they already are just to get more listeners. Like, I feel like that's just disgusting. And we need to really lift up the creators that are doing it the right way. Yes, I... I... I completely agree. And that is why I will be linking all of your podcasts in the link, <laughs> description link, whatever we call it, all those things. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Well, I hope you have a really good Saturday and a good rest of your weekend. And I can't wait to hear about your horrible bosses. <laughs> yeah. Well, and let me know if you have more questions, you know, while you're working on it. Yes, most definitely. I will send you any messages if I have questions. Awesome. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye.